Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. I'm your host, Nicholas Rapold. For our latest episode, I catch up with the critic Jonathan Romney, a veteran of the festival circuit who regularly files for Screen Daily. For this year's Blockbuster Can lineup, he joins the podcast to talk about a strong batch of films that we haven't heard about yet. That includes two Iranian movies, A Hero from Oscar winner Oscar Farhadi, and Hit the Road, a debut feature from Panah Panahi. There was also a curious new movie co-directed by Miguel Gomez, which plays with chronology, and a new Jacques Audiard movie, Paris 13th District. And finally, a highly unpredictable Russian film called Petrov's Flu. It's a mix of adventuresome films that we'll definitely be hearing more about down the road. Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. Very happy this time to talk with a critic who I usually am able to podcast in person with, uh, not to be this year, uh, and that is uh, the critic Jonathan Romney. Uh, hello, Jonathan. Hello. You are now safely ensconced at, at home, right? Yes, I'm back at home after a really confusing time for um, British visitors to Cannes because our government had said, if you come back on Monday, you don't have to quarantine at all. But if you come back the day before, you'll still have to quarantine for 10 days. So suddenly there was a rush of people trying to, you know, delay their return. And people were kind of frenziedly changing their tickets to Monday and then, um, you know, booking themselves two nights in Nice. And then suddenly the rule changed back. If you've been in France, no, you still have to do 10 days. So here I am. I'm back in London. I didn't get to spend two days in Nice, which actually is something I've, I've always wanted to do. I thought this would have been a great excuse to do it finally. But I'm in London and it's hot, nearly as hot as it was in Cannes. And um, actually, um, you know, the last movie I saw, it always sounds like, you know, when you come back from Cannes, you really think that the last two weeks will probably be the last movie you saw and, and then will ever see because you're so exhausted. You can't picture seeing anything ever again. But I'm sure, you know, I will by this time tomorrow. <laughs> but it sounded like once you got in the groove and kind of hit a stride there that you were you were able to see a good string of films. And you were filing, as usual, for, for Screen Daily. Yeah. And and it was really interesting. I mean, one thing I like about reviewing from there is, you, you know, you can you can state preferences for what you'd like to review. But in the end, you end up with kind of an arbitrary list of films, which means that sometimes you discover things you never would have seen otherwise. Actually, that didn't happen this year, but I did I did get to see some interesting things. And I had very few out and out duds, although there were a couple and there were French in particular, but maybe we shouldn't talk about those. There were also a couple of duds in the uh, official selection as well by eminent names. And actually, that was strange. That was why the festival started off badly for me, because, you know, I couldn't believe that the Verhoeven film was in competition. You know, it, it seemed like, you know, an absolute folly, but not a terribly exciting one. It actually felt quite boring to me. The Nanni Moretti film, Tre Piani, just felt like the most stifled, complacent bourgeois drama and absolutely, you know, just very contrived. And there's actually a moment when um, the character played by Nanny Moretti himself receives quite a brutal kicking. And I think many people in the audience sort of felt, yes, you know. <laughs> but, but that was probably the low point of the official selection. Mm. Well, it's, it, was, it was hard for any particular film to occupy the limelight for any, any length of time. Um, and even just observing, you know, I would see 
a frenzy for something and the next day, you know, it, it might as well not have happened. I think the Moretti one is safely six feet under. I did not hear from that one again. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it was even happening, I mean, you know, with a film here and there. We don't have to start with this, but I mean, like the Farhadi film, A Hero, seemed like people liked, but then, I, I don't know, I felt like it sort of also came came and went. That was a really interesting film. I mean, I haven't been convinced by Farhadi before, and sometimes, you know, he's very much committed to contrivance. And, you know, with a lot of his films, unless you're really paying attention, you're going to miss exactly what happened, you know, like like the past, which hinges entirely on a bizarre dry cleaning incident. And this film, I actually... Um, I slightly dozed off at the beginning, so I kind of skipped an important plot point, and everyone I spoke to had fallen asleep at a different point, and therefore, you know, between us, we weren't quite able to reconstruct the plot. But basically, it's about a guy who has been in prison for debt, and he thinks he's able to get off um, and repay his debt thanks to uh, a handful of gold coins, which are been found and he ends up handing back these coins to their owner and uh, is celebrated as a hero and an exemplar of public spirit and then you know he's asked to just kind of verify produce evidence to verify that he really did this and you know he runs out of evidence and you know he he finds himself extremely compromised and everyone is furious with him particularly the people that insisted on putting him into this kind of heroic role in the first place so it becomes actually a very a very universal thing you know it's very it's very much an Ira- an iranian film uh in an iranian setting but at the same time it's it's a very universal comment on the role of social media and the way that um the public can turn quite violently against anyone at any point especially people that it has celebrated the moment before yeah that's uh, just a quick note about the plot uh, confusion i think that's also happened to me and i think of it as like in audience editing it's like not in camera editing but it's when you fall asleep during a certain moment and then effectively you you've sniffed a scene from the movie and sometimes it improves the movie exactly does. <laughs> yeah i mean actually while we're on uh, farhadi as a as the for better or worse, Banner International Iranian filmmaker mm-hmm. and you know Oscar winning. Um, maybe it's a good moment to just uh, shine a little light on another Iranian film. There, Hit the Road, uh, which I didn't hear much about, and I was I was able to catch up with happily. But that was one you you, you liked as well. Yeah, I liked it very much. Um, so this is Anar Panahi's first film directed by the son of Jafar Panahi, um, who had worked on some of his father's films. And it's really, you know, it, it felt to me like it was a kind of a new voice uh, and a new vision in uh, Iranian cinema. And, and it's a lot of fun. I mean, it's really extraordinary. So um, it's about a family. It's, it's a road movie and a uh, family, parents, older son, and then a much younger son are driving to apparently the, the borders of the country. And, and to begin with, we don't really know why, but, you know, we understand that the younger son wants to leave the country and, you know, the family are kind of having to look out for um, authorities uh, possibly following them. So the father 
um, has its leg in plaster and the younger child is very, um, let's say, hyperactive. And it's the most extraordinary performance. I mean, there's a six-year-old kid called uh, Rayan Salak, who is absolutely extraordinary and, and just kind of relentlessly energetic. And, you know, you can only imagine that they must have been kind of giving this kid sweets all the way through the shoot. Um, he's very funny. He's endlessly talkative. His parents have very kind of, you know, relaxed, but kind of rather, rather sort of spiky humour. It feels, feels very much like an improvised film. Hard to know where it is. The father is played by Hassan Majouni, um, who's a man with a very big sort of piratical beard and has a very kind of warm, mischievous presence. You may remember him from a very odd, very broad Iranian comedy called Pig a few years ago. And he's fantastic. You know, the relations between, between the family members are terrific. Um, but the son is, the child is absolutely extraordinary. And um, there's one moment when suddenly he turns to the camera and does an absolutely perfect lip sync to a song. And uh, it's just one of the, the most extraordinary, weird moments. But it's, it's you know, it's, it's a real ride. And, and you see some very different things, unexpected things along the way, both inside and outside the car. And I know it's, it's, you know, one of the kind of holy grails of cinema to try and reinvent the road movie, which is you know, incredibly difficult to do. But I think Panahi does it extremely well here and, and carries on, you know, the Iranian tradition of in-car movies from his, his father after uh, Taxi Tehran and, of course, after uh, Kiristami's 10. But uh, this takes us outside the car as well and into the road and into the landscape and in a very kind of magical moment into the sky as well. So this was real, you know, my real kind of debut film discovery in Cannes and very, very visionary, but in a kind of gentle, humorous way that was uh, a real pleasure to discover. I really enjoyed it as well. The family, I really liked the dynamicals because there was so much sarcasm, which was kind of a refreshing thing to see. You know, it's even especially given their situation with the son. So he ends up being this like serious slash almost self-serious voice, but they're still just kind of, you know, bumping along with their sarcastic routines, especially the father just saying the most ridiculous things and the mother is hilarious as well. That, and then... They mentioned the the car movie tradition. It really seemed like he was actively, I mean, not in a mannered way, but actively trying to find new ways of, of framing and figure things out. I mean, I remember there's one shot of the older brother where he he's leaning back out of the car with his arms outstretched. It's like a simple, it's almost like it could be like a theater exercise because it's a simple variation, but it's very striking. I don't know yeah. when, when they're parked at some point. So things like that. So yeah, it feels wholly original um, to me. So that's Hit the Road from Panapanahi. And I guess while we're on sort of maybe off the beaten track, off the beaten road, as it were, I heard very little about the uh, Miguel Gomes movie. That was in a sort of one of the parallel sections, right? Yeah, this was in um, Director's Fortnight. So this is a film uh, that he co-directed with his partner, documentarist uh, Maureen Fazendero. And... It's called the Sugua Diaries, but in Portuguese, it's Diarios de Soga. And in French, it's Diaries of 
Puoa. And, you know, you think, what the hell is going on? I was kind of looking to find this place, Soga, Tsugua, on a map. And, of course, it's August backwards in various languages. So it's basically, it's a lockdown film. They shot it in lockdown last year. And it works backwards. You know, it starts day 22 and goes through to day one. And it's basically, it starts off with three people um, having a very intimate private party, three people dancing in a darkened room to The Night by Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons, with all these kind of weird colours coming up from outside. And then you go to the next day and one of them says, hey, let's have a party. And the next day, they're kind of admiring these butterflies in the butterfly house. And then the next day, you see them building the butterfly house. So gradually, you know, we we realise we're going backwards. And suddenly the story fills up. More people start appearing. And we realise we are watching a film being shot. Although, for some reason, at some point, the crew, uh, chronologically speaking, the crew have disappeared. So the crew fills out, you know, as the sets for this film are being are being built. Uh, eventually, Fazandero and Gomez themselves appear, and there's a meeting about how they're going to make a film with reverse chronology, and there's an argument about this. So, you know, in, in the Gomez tradition of films like um, his Arabian Nights and uh, Our Beloved Month of August, I should say Our Beloved Month of Tsugua, it's a film about a film. And because Fazendero is a documentarist, it's almost like she's making a documentary about the making of a fiction while Gomes is making a fiction about the making of a documentary. So there's this very strange, you know, kind of backwards, forwards uh, genre interplay. Of course, you know, much more fun than some of those backwards, forwards films like Tenet. Um, and it's got that characteristic... Uh, Gomish mischief, and one of the actors is Carlotto Cota, who's been in some of his films before, like Taboo, but also was the footballer in that very, very weird film of a couple of years ago, um, Diamantino. Do you remember that by by Schmidt and Abrantes, the sort of surreal oh, sure. football story? So, so it's it's a lot of fun, you know, and it's very kind of joyful. But, but, but above all, you know, it's not only kind of a, a film about you know, how on earth you make a film and how you make a film under impossible circumstances and how those impossible circumstances actually fuel the film. It's a fantastic summer movie. You know, there's really this sense of kind of uh, hanging out in this sort of beautiful kind of balmy place and listening to the Four Seasons and listening to uh, a terrific Portuguese guitarist I've discovered thanks to the film called uh, Norberto Lobo and it's a real pleasure I mean it's absolutely kind of marginal in a way and it's also sort of marginal to to Gomes's more substantial films but you know it's just one of the sort of richest and I think sweetest improvisation projects that that have come out of lockdown in the last year I loved it that sounds terrific. I mean, it makes me wonder, you know, how does a film like that not get the same attention? Is it, I mean, is as some other auteur films, is it just, you know, the number of high-profile films this year? Or is it the element of, like, documentary or improvisation that kind of never really has a, you know, gets a pride of place at, at Cannes? Um, I don't know. What do you think? 
Well, I think one thing is that, that so this film is in Director's Fortnight. I missed most of Director's Fortnight and most of Critics Week just because, you know, it was so crammed. And to, to tell you the truth, um, I mean, you know, the official selection was, was massive this year and it seemed like, you know, on top of, you know, the competition and the new section can premiere and then Saturn Regard and all the other screenings and you know, the problem is in that heat, you know, you don't want to spend your time running between the Palais and the other venues. So if you have a chance to just sort of hang around the Palais all day and not move too much, you know, you will. The prospect of sort of having to kind of trek back right up the other end of the croisette to the Théâtre Croisette, which used to be called the Palais Stephanie, and before that it was a Noga Hilton, and let alone, you know, schlep all the way to the Miramar, where the Critics' Week is, you know, you wanted to make sure that you kind of preserved your energy and stayed in one place if you could. That 100% makes sense. I'm just flashing back to the various times I've had to run between, you know, theatres, and I think I would have collapsed (laughs) in July heat uh, with with that. There there was also the problem that, you know, this year, even though the festival itself was, was, was quieter and there were fewer people, this is the height of the holiday season. So instead of making your way through crowds of festival people, you're also making your way through crowds of people on the way to the beach, you know, carrying inflatables and, you know, they've got the kids and the dog and, you know, so it's that little bit more challenging. I immediately have to imagine like a, a Jacques Tati, Monsieur Hulot or something making his way between exactly. screenings. Or... Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, so that's uh, that was just the Miguel Gomez uh, movie, and I think you said that the ODR movie was one that you also uh, like, Paris Thirteenth District. I don't know what it is in French, but that's the yeah. English in French, it's um in French it's called uh, Les Olympiades, which is the name of a set of tower blocks, and it's this particular area of Paris which uh, is, is kind of Odia's focus. It's, it's kind of a mini city symphony. And, and I thought, well, it could also have been called Sex in the City because, you know, that's exactly what it's about. It's about sort of dating, but dating in the, you know, it, it kind of reinvents the idea of the sort of the Nouvelle Vague Paris romance, but for the era of online dating and, uh, you know, the quick hookup and... Is based on three stories by the uh, comics artist uh, Adrian Tomine, and it's about four characters, and it's very much about um, racial and cultural diversity. So you've got a young guy uh, from an African background who is a literature professor who moves in with a young woman uh, from a Taiwanese family who works in telesales and has this kind of boring job and, you know, wants to kind of, you know, just, you know, have a good time in Paris. Music, drugs, sex, and they become very attached to each other, but they're kind of caught up in the idea of, you know, who who really wants to have a full-time relationship. Meanwhile, there's uh, a young woman from the provinces who is a law student played by Noemi Merlin from Portrait of um, a Young Lady on Fire. And she, in, in a kind of bizarre, you know, you, you have to kind of take a leap to believe this, but she goes to a, a kind of student club night wearing a blonde wig and is mistaken for 
uh, a porn star slash cam girl uh, played by Jenny Beth of uh, the band Savages and a solo artist. And everyone kind of assumes that it's her and that, you know, they start sort of circulating photos of her and this kind of destroys her life. And the next thing we know, she's working as an estate agent along with uh, the guy who is played by uh, a new young actor uh, called Makita Samba. And, you know, it, it, the film kind of explores these characters' relationships to each other, but in particular it explores their relations to the city. And the thing about it is, is, is it's shot beautifully in very kind of harsh black and white by a DOP called Paul Guillaume, who I, I haven't come across very much before. But it looks beautiful. It's just got a ferocious kind of, and, and really quite sort of euphoric energy to it. Um, it's co-written by Lea Misius, who's a director um, in her own right, and made a mark with a film called Ava, and by Celine Sciamma. And the kind of, you know, the female focus and the kind of particular sexual perspective that it has uh, is very much in uh, Celine Sciamma's bag. So it's really kind of interesting that Odia, who... You know, I mean, we think of him perhaps as making kind of guy movies, although in fact, you know, he's made films very much from a female perspective before, uh, Read My Lips and uh, Rust and Bone. And, you know, he's kind of rejuvenating himself here. I mean, it's very much, uh, you know, a youth film, but it doesn't feel like one of those movies where, you know, a male director of a certain age is kind of looking, you know, from a distance, either sort of um, patronisingly or judgmentally uh, at younger people, or or regarding them as a sort of a fascinating sort of separate, uh, a separate race, a separate species. You know, it, it really feels very fresh, and you know, it's it's quite a slight film in some way, and it's quite slight by by Odia's standards, but it's. Um, it's very, you know, at the least, it's very charming and fresh and energetic. And it kind of reinvents what, what ODR has been doing, which I think has been getting a little a little heavier in recent years. Yeah, I had to remind myself that he, he actually, that he won the Palm with Nippon. I guess that's now five or six years ago, but uh, that was maybe not my first choice that year. But this sounds very interesting. For some reason, I thought of Mektoub which I, I think I only caught one of the two parts of it, but it's, it sounds like a different, uh, different approach. <laughs> yeah, I only saw Mektoub part one, but, you know, people were kind of reeling out of part two, you know, absolutely, you know, are you kidding? So, no, this is completely different. Although, you know, it is very much a film about sex and, and it kind of takes sex sort of seriously, but in absolutely sort of, uh, you know, non-exploitative and non-judgmental way. And, you know, it does say, well, you know, sex is freely available, but, you know, how do people feel about love and can they find love and are they satisfied? So, you know, so it's kind of social investigation, but not, it's not that kind of, you know, what are the problems of young people today? <laughs> right, yeah. Young yeah. young adults. I always think of the phrase young adults from uh, exactly. the young ones. Exactly. And, and the new actors are terrific. Makita Samba is fantastic. He's a terrific find. Uh, very kind of warm and witty and has a very kind of laid back style. And Lucy Zhang 
who plays Emily is uh, yeah someone also that uh, I think they're going to be around. I think we're going to see them in in a lot more. And and remember that Odia has form in discovering new talent because he was the one who who launched Tahar Rahim uh, a few years back uh, in a profit. Tahar Rahim, who of course this year was on the Cannes jury. Right. Yeah. So that's Paris 13th District. I think mm-hmm. it already has IFC Films as a distributor, so that will be yeah. out. Can I just mention a French film that I thought was really overlooked? Oh, yeah. I mean, it actually got quite a few bad reviews, I thought really unjustly, but it's a film called La Fracture, which was translated as The Divide, but it's filmed by Catherine Corsini, who has been around for several years as a kind of... You know, some of her films have been quite kind of low-key and middling and with a kind of romantic sweep and very much about depictions of women and depictions of sexual politics. The last two have been really good. She made a fantastic film called An Impossible Love, which was a very strong kind of reinvention of the kind of the modern costume drama of uh, the sort that... Do you remember Diane Curis, who was a kind of very established French name in the 80s and 90s? Um, oh, yes. Yeah. Peppermint Soda, Soda, right? Exactly. So she's kind... That film kind of reinvented the, the Diane Curis um, modern historical movie. And this one um, I thought was terrific. And it's a kind of comedy of manners, but political manners. Um, and so you've got Valérie Bruni-Tedeschi and the um, terrific uh, Marina Foyce, really known in France, but but barely known elsewhere. And they play a kind of yin and yang couple who are on the verge of breaking up, you know, Bruno Tedeschi doing her kind of patented, uh, you know, neurotic about to blow a fuse routine. Marina Foyce being very kind of calm and knowing and quizzical and ironic. Uh, but the Brunica Tedeschi character ends up in hospital in emergency room uh, at the same time as people are coming in from a gilet jaune demonstration that has kind of exploded. And, of course, the thing about the gilet jaune is that, that there was um, a faction on the left, but there was also a faction on the extreme right. So if someone walks into a hospital wearing, you know, the yellow high-vis uh, waistcoat, you don't know where they stand politically. And the film kind of plays on this. And this young, uh, well, maybe not so young, but a, a kind of working class guy, a truck driver played by Pio Marmai, comes in uh, also with a fracture. And he's kind of furious and he's angry and he wants to get back to the demo. But also he's, he's worried that he's going to lose his job because he's not supposed to be there. And, you know, the social tensions kind of crackle and fizz and turn apocalyptic but in a way that you know is very witty and very sparky and also kind of very much a sort of statement of solidarity with the um, you know overworked French health system and a lot of people just did not go for it at all and I think you know probably you know it is it is a very French film the references are very specifically French but I, I thought uh, and, and the style, uh, the style of the comedy is, I think, very specifically French. So maybe it didn't translate so well, but I think it was really underrated and, and you know, enjoyed it enormously. La Fracture. The Divide, yeah, yeah. And actually, you know, with a lot of, you know, you can apply some of those ideas to kind of recent um, 
American unrest and um, in some ways, you know, the difficulty of, you know, people sort of needing to state where they stand politically and often running the risk of being misunderstood. Actually, I was thinking of, you know, the, the sort of farcical revelation recently that when uh, Trump saw the pictures of the people who'd stormed the Capitol, allegedly his first response was, these look like Democrats. <laughs> have to send them back to casting. We have to get them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In France, the situation is somewhat different. Mm, yeah. I think I think Cossini, you know, captures it well. And, and you know, it, it felt much more alive as an example of current French cinema than either the François Ozon film, which I felt was really, you know, disappointingly, you know, well-mannered and studious for him. And also I, I kind of felt the same way about Mia Hansen Love's Bergman Island. Yeah, it seemed like that one just did not ignite. Yeah, it's a real shame because, you know, she is a great filmmaker and, you know, her best films, Father of My Children, Eden, mm-hmm. uh, Things to Come, you know, she is really, really good, really subtle. And she kind of aimed for the same subtlety. But So this is a story of a couple who are both filmmakers, Tim Roth and Vicky Creeps, and they go to, uh, I think it's called Furrow, F-A-R-O anyway, where Ingmar Bergman had his home and, you know, shot some of his films. And they go there and they go to the Bergman Centre and there are a lot of people, uh, including some critics who you may recognise, sitting around talking about Bergman. And then the Vicky Creeps character is writing script also set on the island, which she narrates. And there's... And I'm sort of thinking, what is it about this film that worries me? And... First of all, I thought, well, the dialogue is really bad. You know, the English dialogue, you know, they're saying things like, you know, writing for me is a torment, self-inflicted agony, like blood from a stone. And then they're talking about Bergman. And I suddenly thought, but this is a Woody Allen movie. And I could suddenly start hearing all this dialogue in the voice of Woody Allen. And they go, you know, for me, writing is torture self-inflicted agony like blood from a stone and it kind of completely you know transformed the film for me in 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 the wrong way I feel really bad about this because she is a terrific director but I just kind of thought it felt very sort of genteel to me and it didn't it didn't catch fire and I think perhaps the problem was that it was in English and um, it needed to be in a language she was more comfortable with yeah, I um, those lines do sound uh, compatible with uh, that, <laughs> that that delivery and and but and, and also there was one line where they're talking about you know the, the, the contrast between you know Ingmar Bergman you know he made so many great masterpieces um, he was a great artist and yet you know his personal life left a lot to be desired and I could just say you know he was a great artist he made all these great movies and yet as in his personal life maybe he wasn't so great but but you know what maybe let's not go there there may have to be a kind of new award every year in Cannes you know the accidental Woody Allen movie a dreaded honor yeah but um yeah, so yeah, but Bergman Island, and I, I wanted to make sure that, that we talked about one other movie that I know that you, you liked, and that was a, a Koganada film, because I, I seem to remember that you're also a weird admirer of his uh, first feature, Columbus, um, and so after Yang, it was a worthy follow-up. Yeah, I like this film very much. I mean, it's really individual. I, I thought Columbus was fantastic and, you know, really 
reinvented the American small town independent drama um, in a very elegant way. And it was it was a real aesthetes film. You know, it was about architecture and about one of the things I loved about it. It was a movie about you know really intelligent aesthetic people. You know, people who you know, an architect and, uh, you know, a young woman who who's sort of doesn't know what to do with her life, but she loves architecture because she lives in a town um, where the architecture is fabulous. So um, the new film has a very similar, um, you know, aesthetic finesse, but it's set in the future as science fiction, but it's kind of conceptual science fiction or philosophical science fiction. And it takes place in uh, a very... Um, Asian inflected version of America and it's about a family that have adopted a young girl a Chinese girl and in order to bring her in in contact with her Chinese identity uh, they have bought a Chinese android or rather an android in Chinese form whose job is partly to to kind of be a big brother to her and partly to, you know, dispense Chinese fun facts. And then the android starts to malfunction and has to be repaired. And, you know, it's it's kind of a long, complex story, but it becomes about the nature of artificial consciousness and and identity. You know, it's about, you know, what what's interesting about this android? Is it that he is seemingly human or is it that he is seemingly Chinese you know what makes him human what makes him Chinese and if he is either or both human and or Chinese then you know what is a Chinese person particularly in America and um, it's it's incredibly rich and, and beautiful and it's full of ideas and it's one of those films where you know there are almost too many ideas to take in and in some ways it's rather overstated particularly in its visual effects but you know like Columbus it has a real lightness it has I, I felt a real kind of philosophical depth um, it's really beautifully finished I mean the, the visual look is absolutely stunning and there's even even the texture of the reflections on a car windscreen have been so sort of meticulously uh, worked out, so meticulously polished. But the performances are great, and you even get to see Colin Farrell do a pretty pretty much note-perfect Werner Herzog impersonation. Apparently, his Herzog impersonation in real life is actually so good that Coconada had to ask him to tune it down so it wouldn't be implausibly good but in the film it's still pretty good but you know it just it just I think you know you're dealing in this film with someone who has you know a real visual and aesthetic imagination twinned with you know a kind of you know very very kind of acute a set of philosophical inquiries. And I wonder how it's going to go down, you know, when it's released, because I think anyone expecting any kind of straight science fiction film or anything, you know, even in that kind of science fiction philosophy bag that something like Soderbergh's Solaris was in, is going to be sort of slightly shaken that, you know, it doesn't deliver the obvious. Um, And of course... You know, that's the great thing about it. But it's going to be a curiously hard film to sell.
but I, I think it's a real achievement. And again, one that I think was in danger of being overlooked in the kind of the flood of interesting stuff. Yeah, that was in the, I guess, very first few days or, um, yeah, but it sounds very, very in intriguing. And, you know, just hearing hearing it talked about in terms of, uh, you know, Asian identity as well as also interesting. I mean, it makes me think back, you know, when I was reading classics of science fiction, you know, William Gibson uh, or, you know, even like some of the beginning of like uh, Man in the High Castle or something, um, the sense that in those science fiction novels, the the kind of otherness of Asian identity, like in, in the in Neuromancer or the or in cyberspace, there's a sense, you know, very 80s sense of like Japanese corporations taking over and it being kind of a novelty and something odd or, or even in Blade Runner, you know, you have that as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, here to actually make it more of an interior um, and personal, sounds like, perspective and exploration of, of, of identity um, it's, yeah. is very intriguing. It's also really interesting um, comparison with, with another um, great recent film of, let's say, conceptual or exploratory science fiction, which is a film that was in Berlin a few years ago and really overlooked, and I think one of the most fascinating science fiction films of recent years, which is called Target by Alexander Zeldovich, which kind of did the same thing for Russia. It was basically a sort of, you know, futuristic rewrite of Anna Karenina, except, you know, it was set among the oligarch class in a future Russia that very similarly was dominated by, by Chinese cultural influence and, you know, the things that people would be doing in their everyday, you know, like, you know, even like sort of drinking particular kinds of tea were were predominantly Chinese. I mean, in that film, you know, there's the idea of a superhighway between uh, Beijing and Moscow, and um, it's about China and Russia in a different but certainly a similar way to, to the way this is about, you know, the kind of, let's say, the the sinification of American culture um, in, a really, in a really interesting way. And, of course, here, this is a film that absolutely kind of embraces and, and celebrates the idea of uh, Asian-ness as something uh, that will, um, you know, revigorate and, and, and refuel American culture. But at the same time as, you know, it, it also in some ways represents a kind of lifestyle chic that, that the film is sceptical about. Um, yeah, I mean, that's definitely all, all over... Um... Gibson and, and Philip K. Dick. <laughs> um, and it's interesting, the anxieties that get projected into science fiction in terms of, you know, what the dominating forces can be next. That, you know, I think, like in A Clockwork Orange, where, you know, his slang is peppered with Russianisms and, and things. Um, so that's always kind of funny to me. But actually, just, I don't know if we want to open up a can of worms, because I think we're probably uh, winding down here. But talking about Russian film and Target, I, I realize I haven't heard anything about Petrov's flu. Yeah, I, I, that was a strange film. I like that very much. Uh, it's by uh, Kirill uh, Sivrenikov, who um, is also a theatre director who was uh, famously under house arrest. Um, I'm not quite sure what his situation is now, but he was he was uh, arrested on one of those increasingly dubious-sounding charges, which are very, very common in Russia. And, you know, he's a real force. I mean, he made that film a couple of years ago, Lieta Summer, which celebrated the um, Leningrad um, sort of post-punk music scene of the early 80s, uh, which I wasn't wild about. But this film is 
really something. So it's it's basically about the idea of Russian life as being a kind of state of febrile hallucination in which, you know, everyone is tetchy, everyone's angry, everyone's harassed. Um, they're kind of talking about, you know, how every politician since the Soviet Union has screwed things up. There's a kind of nostalgia for, you know, oh, why couldn't they've just let us be instead of trying to change everything? And um, society, you know, from, you know, the simplest bus journey to, um, you know, taking your kids to a party kind of blows up into a series of uh, frenzies and aggravations. And it's a film that that kind of bowls along a a kind of intense, um, uh, delirious speed. Um, It's very hard to follow. Uh, It suddenly jumps at one point into a a long black and white sequence following uh, a character um, that we've met in a flashback to the hero's childhood. And it's very hard to know exactly where it's going or how, but one of the films that it most reminded me of, although not quite in a sort of, quite a sort of radically uh, disorienting way, was uh, Khrustalyov, My Car by Alexei German. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I love that movie. And, and there's something of that same kind of frenzy to it. You know, basically it's about a moment at which uh, everyone we meet um, seems to have caught this flu and seems to be, you know, walking around in a kind of uh, frenzied delirium. And um, it's, you know, it's incredibly energetic. I think I need to see it again just to get a sense of what the hell is going on. But it's like being kind of lowered into a very sort of sweaty, a sweaty pit and sort of having to sort of fight your way out. And it's quite sort of breathtaking. I mean, you know, it wasn't the most, let's say, formally full-on film in competition. And I think if Titan hadn't been there, which made everyone sit up and go, oh, my God, what is this? I think people would have noticed Petrov's flu a lot more. But I think it's a film which will, you know, definitely come into its own in the next year on the festival circuit. Yeah, it's a movie that also seemed to me there's a lot to unpack and to kind of gloss in it that probably as the movie makes its way, you know, people will make more sense of all the references. Because it's a movie I could see if I grew up in Russia, I would watch it and I would be noticing things like the kind of, I don't know, uh, you know, food labels or something that they have. It it seems like very, uh, in a very like Madeline kind of way, attuned to the little details of of life from day to day of, you know, what exactly it is to have to wait, I don't know, get groceries or this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the particular style of rudeness of bus conductors, you know, that kind of thing. Yes. Yes. Which yeah. is a, get reaches Baroque proportions here. And uh, it's kind of great. Um, so yeah, I was joking with someone that the tagline will, will have to be Petrov's flu. Catch it. <laughs> there is no cure. <laughs> And I think that brings us probably to, to the end. Um, we've covered quite a number of films. Um, and I guess to end with the ending, to end with the finale, I, uh, I was just curious what you thought, what you made of the, the awards, which the ceremony itself was a bit more exciting, I guess, than it, even, uh, than it usually is as, as a climax. 
Yeah, actually, there was a kind of Oscars moment when uh, Spike Lee read the um, Palme d'Or Award at the wrong time because it should have been the climax of the night and, and he kind of blew it. But it was like one of those things that happen at the Oscars where people take the wrong piece of paper out of the wrong envelope. And um, I, I didn't actually see it happen. I was just sort of following it on Twitter. But it was an extraordinary thing. I mean, I think um, the jury, you know, for once, they pretty much recognised all the right films, you know. I mean, I think, in a way, the most deserving Palm d'Or, just as a kind of complete satisfying film, would have been uh, Hamaguchi's Drive My Car. But it won the uh, Best Screenplay Award, which I think, uh, you know, it's thoroughly deserved. There were prizes for Memoria and the Fahadi and Titan by Julia Ducourneau. It's not a traditional palm door, and it's kind of, you know, an against-the-grain palm door in the sense that Pulp Fiction was in its time. You know, you usually sort of associate that prize with some sort of grand Nobel-like humanist statement. And this was a film of, you know, kind of blazing... Uh, amoral irresponsibility and um, phenomenal cinematic energy. I mean, it was just so entertaining to watch. You know, it made no sense at all. I didn't know what the hell was going on. There were about three or four films in there. So, you know, she's a serial killer and she's got um, a metal implant in her head and she goes on the run and uh, disguises herself as a boy by breaking her nose, um, you know, in one of the great kind of squirm-inducing moments of the festival. And then she forms this kind of weird sort of father-daughter, father-son slash romance with uh, Vincent Landon as a fire chief. Um, and you've never seen him do this kind of role before. You know, he's kind of completely out of his comfort zone. And, you know, it's just such a weird film, and it's shot in these blazing colours, and there's definitely, uh, you know, a lot of winking at Cronenberg uh, going on. And uh, I was just kind of feeling sort of nostalgic. There used to be a sort of a generation kind of now, now gone of extremely conservative British critics who would, who would get very angry about films like Crash and, you know, try and sort of promote a kind of moral panic around it and I just thought oh how entertaining it would have been if these people were still around but you know it's 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 a genuinely crazy film you know it's just sort of on fire I mean it is like you know whether you like it or not it's watching it is actually like sticking your finger in in an electric socket for two hours um and you know being unable to pull it out and and in fact you know as sheer provocation you know, given that everyone thought Benedetta was going to be the shocker of the festival, it just made Benedetta look so old-fashioned and stale and tame. And, you know, Julia Ducourneau is an absolutely um, a class act, as is her, her lead actress, um, a newcomer called Agathe Roussel, who, who just, you know, goes out there goes for blazes i mean it's it's crazy and intense and you know uh just a wild film
I'm very excited to, to see that one and also, you know, hopeful about, you know, what, what kind of impact or what kind of reception it can get in terms of audiences. I guess Neon is also distributing that um, just as it did the um, previous Palm Door winner, Parasite. It's actually you know, a return to that, to that great genre, which has kind of fallen into disrepair these days because there aren't the places to show those. But, you know, what used to be called a midnight movie, it's, it's a total midnight movie. And, and I think it's going to, um, you know, it's going to have an effect. No, I immediately thought of uh, another midnight movie, uh, Tetsuo Iron Man, when, when I just heard the outlines yeah. of it. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, I think uh, that that brings us to the end. Um, I mean, I, with the with the awards, I was just also going to quickly say I was glad to see that uh, ah, Ahed's knee um, got you know shared an award with with Memoria, just because sometimes the movies that show very early in the festival are sometimes uh, forgotten by the end. Yeah, and that was a film of real political anger, which also found a very you know a furious and and very kind of expressionistic camera style and acting style and you know it's um you know what was nice is you know in a film a festival where there were a number of rather formally conservative movies from from known names uh there were at least a couple of people you know like like julie ducorneau and uh lapid and Serebrinikov who were just prepared to go hell for blazes hell forever um yeah that's wonderful to see all right well um thanks again for giving me a tour now this time since i could not be there sounds like a definitely a satisfying edition um and i guess on to the next <laughs> yeah see you there next year uh, yes absolutely. i hope you may when it's a bit cooler yeah <laughs> one can hope all right signing off take care all the best you've been listening to the last thing i saw with your host nicholas Rapold. If you like what you heard, please consider signing up at repold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song, Montserrat. Thank you for listening.